There's nothing worth more that could ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. Your presence, Lord. I've tasted and seen. Of the sweetest of loves, where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come fly. There's nothing worth more 
your presence we have nothing bless you uh, we're going to be today in the church bibles page 785 page 785 out of isaiah 2 uh, real quick um, a few praises and prayer requests um, i spoke to adam earlier he says martin's hanging right in there bless the lord he's extending his time uh, martin does that's amazing. Thank the Lord for that. And uh, um, I forgot to ask Daniel, but Lee Martin, amen. Thumbs up. Praise the Lord for the healing there. And we got a prayer request that I would mention to you. Linda uh, and Raul and Nina, all three are having the upper respiratory, like a bad kind of cold flu symptoms. And so we'll keep them in our prayers this week as they work through that. And our little grandson, Gabriel, will be having a surgery. Um, on Friday, this coming Friday, so we'll pray that doctors have got wisdom and above all, Lord will just oversee that whole process for him and mom and dad, and uh, that all will go well. So uh, we're going to be reading verses 12 <clears throat> through 18 in Isaiah 2. Of course, this is all the word that the Lord has given Isaiah for his people, and uh, this, uh, for some reason, he led me. To this this week and I was very humbled uh, by this passage right here for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty upon everything lifted up and it shall be brought low upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up and upon all the oaks of Bashan upon all the high mountains upon all the hills that are lifted up upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall Upon the ships of Tarshish and upon the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord <clears throat> alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall, sh he shall utterly abolish. The idols he shall utterly abolish. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we do cry out today that you would Grant us your spirit today as we come together to praise you, to humble ourselves before you. There is none other that compares to you. And I pray, God, you keep us, Lord, in that right place, that we will continue to not fall into having our own way, but to always beg and plead for your spirit and your presence to lead us in all things. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come before you because of the amazing sacrifice you sent in your son precious blood that was shed for us, Lord, we just bless you for, and uh, we stand amazed at your patience and your extension of, of grace and mercy to us. We bless you. We do pray for these today that are sick. Lord, I just pray that Linda and Raul and Nina will feel your strength and your presence as they suffer through these things that are illnesses of this world that will also pass someday. We pray, God, that you would give them strength and that they would feel your presence and they would know that you're with them as they as they work through this. Uh, we, we praise you for the praises for um, Martin Placencia and uh, for Lee Martin 
in the way you're working there, Lord. We just bless you for the physical healing and the uh, just the perfection of our time here. It's just a picture of your perfection and how you have everything worked out. So we bless you for that. And uh, we do pray you be with uh, Gabriel and his parents this week as they prepare to take this young child, six-month-old, to, uh, to have surgery. So I pray, God, that you would oversee all the things that are done there and that the doctors are only tools that you're using uh, for your glory in all of it. So we bless you and we thank you for, for all that we can come to be thankful for you today. We, we come and we beg and we plead that you would fill this place today with your mighty spirit. We pray in your holy and awesome name. Amen.
sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope of no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains And my orphan heart was given a name My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance When death was arrested and my life began Oh, your grace, so She's over me You have made me new Now life begins with you It's your endless love Pouring down on us You have made us new Now life begins with you from my chains I'm a prisoner no more my shame was a ransom he faithfully bore he canceled my debt and he called me Rejoiced as though heaven had lost But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand That's when death was arrested and my life began Oh, your grace so free washes
Good morning. So the neighborhood that Rebecca and I live in is pretty wild. Um, we have lived in this neighborhood for, for three years now, and there is a lot of quarreling going on. Um, there are people who want a commonly stained fence color. There are people who don't think that storage buildings should be allowed. There are people who don't mow their yards and people who are frustrated about it. There are people who think they should be able to park boats and RVs in the street and people who don't clean up after their pets. There's a Facebook community with lots of infighting, aggression and bickering that seems to be ongoing and without end. Some people want to just advocate for a safe and peaceful community, while others just want their opinions and perspectives to be heard. As a result, there are even people that are moving out of the neighborhood to escape this chaos and conflict. A few weeks ago, uh, there was a discussion that began about a Christmas light and decoration contest that would soon begin. And it seems to be the one thing that the neighborhood agrees upon, the need for everyone to have Christmas lights on their houses. And it's amazing how positive the tone on the Facebook discussion has become. If everyone can just come together during this time of year and decorate their houses, all of the problems will disappear. The fence stain colors, the oversized storage buildings, the unmowed yards, the boats and RVs that block people's thoroughfares, and pets that are using other people's yards. Ironically, I imagine that those who don't decorate their houses will be given a dose of so-called Christmas spirit and receive some cheery scrutiny far in excess of those with four-foot weeds or 12-foot storage buildings because that's a lot easier to focus on. This situation seems pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? This idea of unity, peace, or even a relationship with neighbors because of some outward decoration. But this is exactly what we'll read about in Philippians today. Paul will warn us about false confidence and things that look right but are at odds with God's purpose. So before we get into Philippians, there are two ideas that shape the context for what we'll read. And I'd like to describe them a bit. The first has to do with a group we've heard of called the Judaizers. And the second has to do with the idea of our flesh. So the Judaizers... Um, are a group that we've heard of, and their name means just that. The word Judaizer means to live according to Jewish customs. The primary problem with this group was their misappropriation of Jewish customs in order to be saved. 
the Judaizers taught that in order for a Gentile like you and me to become a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, a believer, they must first conform to Old Testament law and be circumcised. Now, it's very important to say that I believe the problem that Paul confronts with the Judaizers is not observance of Jewish customs, but the observance of Jewish customs as a requirement for salvation. So turn with me. The first place we'll look is in Exodus chapter 12 in the church's Bible on page 74. Exodus 12. So the Judaizers have easily been warranted as legalistic, self-righteous, and overzealous. And I think this is definitely accurate, but we should know that there is a degree of precedent to their thinking. They didn't just come up with this idea of following the law and being circumcised on their own. So let's read together here in Exodus. We'll read verses 43 through 49. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it, but every man's servant who is bought for money, when you have circumcised him, then he may eat it. A sojourner and hired servant shall not eat of it. In one house it shall be eaten, you shall not carry any of the flesh outside of the house, nor shall you break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. And when a stranger dwells with you and wants to keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then let him come near and keep it. And he shall be as a native of the land, for no uncircumcised person shall eat it. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. Let me read that last verse again. One law shall be for the native-born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So there are several passages in the Old Testament that describe instructions for the non-Jewish Gentiles who were strangers, slave, guests of the Hebrews, that had to be completed in order to participate in the things that had been dedicated for God's people. So hear me. Even for the Jewish people, keeping the feasts never warranted salvation or guaranteed a relationship with God, but was done because of their deliverance and relationship with him. So if that's true, likewise, those wanting to join in as Gentiles, the instructions guaranteed nothing. But they were required as an act of obedience, consecrating them from being a Gentile to understand and observe God's holiness. So the Judaizers that we read about and that we often put out in so far left field for being crazy and wild and rogue and foolish and legalistic weren't so far-fetched. 
The Judaizers were, however, hung up on these things as a requirement and not a response. Turn with me next to Galatians chapter 2 in the church's Bible on page 1338. Galatians chapter 2, page 1338. Here in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is recounting to the church at Galatia how he confronted Peter for forcing Gentile believers to what the Greek says is Judaize, to follow the customs of the Jews strictly. So let's read together in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Paul says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Paul writes to the church in Galatia who have been deceived by Judaizers. And he says that mankind, that we, Jews and Gentiles alike, are not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul never says that the law is worthless nor that either Jews or Gentiles are exempt from it. Instead, that the law itself does not have the power to justify or to save. Next, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, over just a few pages on 1343. Here in Ephesians, Paul explains that our salvation has nothing to do with our own accomplishment in the flesh. That as Gentiles, we were born as strangers from God's covenant. Right, like those we read about back in Exodus, we are the stranger, we are the sojourner, we are those who have not been born into God's people. So let's read together in chapter 2, verses 8 through 18. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of celebration, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them to, to God, excuse me, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we have access by one spirit to the Father. I know that there's a lot to consider here. But what is important for us to, to kind of zoom in on today is to recognize that our salvation, our salvation has nothing to do with what we accomplish in the flesh. Paul says this in each place that we have read, that it is not what we can accomplish in the flesh or according to the law. But what Paul says in verse 13 that we have been brought near because of the blood of Christ. Also, the other place that we've got to see here, the one new man that God has designated. No longer are there Jews who keep the law or Gentiles who do not, but one new man who have come together, as verse 18 says, to have access to one spirit and the Father one new man it's with these things that we have to come to understand Philippians chapter 3 many read into Philippians chapter 3 in a vacuum as if there is nothing going on outside of this church but in the first century of the New Testament all of these things are swirling around and the enemy is working to run amok and destroy God followers, both Jew and Gentile. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 over just a few more pages to your right, page 1350. Our passage here in Philippians is quite well known and quite well referred to, but frequently does not consider the background of the New Testament. So let's read together in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Paul says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. 
But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is a powerful and strong word that Paul gives, and it's, it's exactly as most of his statements, a long, long run-on sentence as if Paul has eight things he wants to impress upon us at the same time, and he, he tries to get through it all in one breath. And I've read this passage before many times, probably like you have, and it, it seems so powerful, but what I have missed every time, what Paul is conveying is that our reliance on the flesh is as profane to God as a false gospel. When we depend on ourselves, it is as a stench to the Lord's nostrils as a gospel that is not true. It's interesting because there's actually no known instances where the Judaizers were coming to the church in Philippi. So Paul pretty much writes them about a non-issue. The Judaizers were in Galatia, in Ephesus, and other places, but Paul writes to them about a problem that doesn't exist because he's really not talking about the Judaizers at all, but he's saying this false confidence is evil. It's as evil in the sight of God as these Judaizers who manipulate the gospel for their purpose. Paul wants to weed out any reliance that this church has on the flesh. That we would be drawn so he compare that we would be drawn to. So he compares it with this heinous manipulation of circumcision. In verse 2 he says, "Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation." Dogs in the New Testament weren't like the house pets that we have today. So don't imagine a fluffy, well-groomed, nail-clipped, trained, obedient dog that hops on your lap. Dogs were scavengers who ate scraps and preyed on the food of weaker animals. So Paul is telling us to beware of the spiritual predators who are themselves servants and workers of evil. And he calls their achievement of false circumcision mutilation, destruction. In verse 3, he describes what God intends for us. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and who have no confidence in the flesh. He tells us this is what the circumcised heart looks like. 
that we should worship God alone according to the Spirit, that we should rejoice in the things that Christ Jesus has done, and to put no confidence in fleshly achievement. The legalists that Paul is really condemning and writing against consider themselves as the only ones who were truly circumcised and righteous. So Paul counters to say that we are truly circumcised who worship in spirit as opposed to the flesh. Paul is saying that the Judaizers and those like them have placed their, their hope in fallen human flesh. There's three reasons that Paul gives why we cannot have confidence in the flesh. I think it's helpful to, to see that he gives three specific reasons. The first is that our righteousness comes only from God. This is consistent with everything else that we've read, right? Everything that we read in Galatians and Ephesians, everything that we could read in Acts chapter 15, that our righteousness cannot be achieved in any other way. I feel like we know this, and I feel like the Philippians know this, but our tendency is to find self-righteousness. In verse 9, he makes his case that's consistent with his other explanations. He says, and be found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. See, read there with me. It is a give and take relationship of faith in Christ and from God that is happening. It's not a one-way street. It's a two-way street. He says, which is found from, excuse me, let's start at the beginning. And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God by faith. This faith is happening, coming, and going. It's only through faith and trusting in the Lord that we can be made righteous. Paul is drawing a line in the sand here between the Judaizers and others who remain focused on the law for their righteousness and the righteousness God has given to him through faith in Christ. What he's explaining is a personal relationship. He says that he is being found in Christ. Has nothing to do with him. He's being found somewhere else. To be found in Jesus is nothing he's done or can accomplish. In a sense, Paul is saying that he has renounced his way or any way to justify himself by trusting in God's righteousness. The second reason we cannot have faith in the flesh is the Judaizers or anyone who add requirements beyond these, beyond faith, or rely on their own achievements in in the flesh, Paul says they're rejecting the gospel. It almost seems right, doesn't it? 
to add a little bit to Jesus' word in order to strictly adhere to it. It seems right to kind of give our own version of what we read, our own version of Jesus, of kind of helping Jesus contextualize for where we live, right? Our century is different than the first century, isn't it? So Jesus and the gospel need a little bit of help to clarify what it really means to live like Jesus and be a follower. But the point of Jesus' message was to undo and correct the misunderstanding of the law-keeping followers of Yahweh, even people who were trying to do it right, who had become legalistic, or worse, casual and apathetic, as a means only to look outwardly good to others. Jesus says in Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So adding anything to faith in Jesus for salvation, hear me, for salvation. Adding anything to Jesus for salvation besides faith is a rejection of his plan. The third reason, the third reason we cannot have faith in the flesh is that to actually have faith in Christ Jesus, we have to give up everything in order to truly know him. That's pretty much why Paul says what he says here. His entire explanation is that he had to give up everything and that we have to give up everything that could potentially be a crutch or false confidence in order to place our soul trust and confidence and Jesus. Paul's main message for us today isn't exactly new. I would imagine, well, I'll say this, he uses this opportunity to reinforce something that I'd imagine every church Paul had been a part of knew. I imagine Paul would have re-emphasized on a regular basis, we cannot have confidence in the flesh. Not having confidence in the flesh was a critical part of the gospel. Because before the gospel, that's all God's followers had was confidence in their flesh. Right? God had in his mercy and grace given a way to be made right, but they distorted it. Just like takes place today, God has given a way to be blameless and have salvation in him, but we have distorted it. Imagine if Paul talked to us today, his message really wouldn't be any different from this. He might offer just a little bit of distinction and context from the Judaizers who we don't see in great number in that way exactly but we do know those who put confidence in the flesh and not in Jesus. To Paul, confidence in the flesh was completely incompatible to purpose in Jesus. It didn't just kind of wear out 
the purpose of Jesus. It didn't diminish. It didn't water down the gospel. It was incompatible and is incompatible. What the Lord has shown me this week is the point Paul makes for his own flesh. That's what typically gets top billing in this passage is when Paul speaks so highly of himself, right? See, Paul is describing his pre-conversion self. And he compares who he was before Jesus changed changed his life. He compares it with the Judaizers' confidence in the flesh. It's important that we see this because Paul isn't still relying on these things, right? He's not saying these things as if to say, I'm still doing this, but I know that it's not really right. He's saying, this is who I was, and this is what I left in order to be useful and follow the Lord. What's more, he explains it was those things that drove him to the pinnacle of opposition to the Lord. It was those things of his flesh that drove him to persecute believers. If there is anyone in Scripture who knows what it is to oppose the things of God, it's Paul. And it happened because of these so-called good things. Paul's pre-conversion self has two advantages that he talks about. The first is his upbringing, and the second is what he accomplished, what he attained, what he worked so hard for. Verse 5 tells us the things that, that were given to Paul through birth, that his parents gave him every opportunity to succeed in what seemed like the right way circumcised on the eighth day. Ethnically, he was from Israel. He was from the same Israelite tribe as Israel's first king, Saul. And he had the ability to speak Hebrew. By all intents and purposes, his parents had given him everything needed to serve the Lord. Then Paul went a step further on his own steam and done everything he could to succeed. And verse 6 tells us that in observing the law, he was a Pharisee. So zealous for the law that he persecuted those believers he believed to be opposed to God's will. In terms of the law's righteousness, Paul was blameless. He'd made every sacrifice. He had said every prayer. He had attended every Shabbat service and done it all right. But in verse 7, Paul says, these things that were gained to me, I counted loss. He doesn't say that when Jesus began to change his life, he considered these things lower than knowing Christ. He says, all caps, I counted them loss. They were a detriment to me. They were like a financial liability to me. You'd think that they would carry over into Paul's new life in Jesus, wouldn't you? Because don't we hear stories like this all the time? Oh, you know, I was just doing my own thing. But, you know, God works everything out for his purpose. 
God works in all my imperfections and all my apostasy from his ways and every darkness that I commit, God's using it for his purpose. You'd think that God wouldn't want to waste these God-given talents of Paul, would you? Surely the Lord would want to use these things for his glory. I mean, Paul was raised in the right part of town. He was from a good community. His family had a good name. He was an articulate speaker. He had a good education. He was of the right denomination. He was a charter member of his congregation. He always spoke up for what was right. Paul was a good old boy, wasn't he? None of this was gained for him. He refused it all for full confidence in Jesus. What Paul's saying is, in order to have full confidence in Jesus, we cannot have any confidence in other things. Any. Paul makes no mention of the type of car he drove, or even that he studied at the best schools, right? He doesn't mention those things that would be real headliners. I mean, Paul really had a PhD in all of the church history, in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic and everything. He studied in Tarsus and Alexandria. He studied in all these great places. He doesn't even mention those. He mentions only the things that were actually for spiritual service. And those things, he says, were nothing. In verse 8, he doubles down on his commitment. He says, indeed, also, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. A step further, the persistent loss Paul continued to experience was a choice for ongoing opportunity to know the Lord. He says it's not just enough to leave every way when we come to know Jesus. Loss is not a one-time thing, but a consistent and ongoing choice an action in order to be remaining found in him. Paul doesn't just write about salvation and righteousness. He talks about being found in the Lord. It's a lot easier to simply wear the outward trappings that seem to convince others were believers or Christians or followers. Likewise, for many, it's exciting to decorate the outside of the house with colorful lights and giant inflatable scenes and participate along with the whole neighborhood to act like everything is wonderful. Much like a pagan holiday that we were never commanded to celebrate, trusting in the accomplishments of the flesh any flesh, yours or mine or anyone else's, is a false gospel that separates us from the Lord's plan. The Lord has shown me this week what my greatest problem has been, and it's that I have trust issues. 
not because I'm unable to trust others, but because I do trust others and because I trust myself. I have had confidence in others and confidence in my own self, my own flesh, which not only robs but rejects the gospel. This is the extreme that we must choose. Our confidence must alone be in Christ for his ability to justify us in righteousness and his ability to accomplish his purpose in us. My friends, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God and the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Amen.
Cause everything you say is life to me I don't wanna miss one word you speak So quiet my heart, I'm listening 